and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined, as always, by Nizar Hassan. And this week, we have got a very, very special guest. You may recognize her from videos on YouTube of the protests, uh, leading chants, and uh, rousing the crowds. It's the one, <laughs> the only, Nadine Mouawad, coming back man. for the second time. Yay! Yeah. Thank you, thank you. So happy to be back. Welcome back. And Nadine is a, a, a big activist. Uh, you came on the show last year to talk about feminism and lots of other stuff. And uh, we're so excited to have you back, uh, especially because you're, like we said, one of the people in the protests uh, out there, what, every day? Yani, I don't want to put you on the spot. Like, as you, much you as can I can. Uh, of course. And I would like to also take this opportunity to wish you and all of your uh, listeners, uh, a very happy revolution. This is really quite, <laughs> uh, it's really quite amazing what's been happening. So uh, I remember last time we were talking about issues. It seems like a lifetime ago that the way we used to think about rights in this country and now it's yeah, seriously. totally mm. been toppled. So this is a wonderful, wonderful time to be an activist and uh, to be here with you both. And as we're getting started, in case uh, our listeners hear anything going on in the background, like we're we're pressing play like right after eight o'clock on Saturday night and something new has started happening this week, uh, started, I think, four days ago or something, where at 8 p.m. every night, a bunch of people like lean out of their windows from their homes and like bang on pots and pans and stuff as a sort of like a sign of like support for the revolution and everything. And so if you, if you hear that, like we're, we're in a closed room and everything, but if anything gets through, then, then that's what that is. It's one of my favorite acts of this revolution. I haven't yeah. been a single place this week, whether it's controlled by this politician, that politician, Christian areas, Muslim areas, everywhere I've been. People have banged their pots and pans at eight, and it's been a most wonderful feeling. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about the pots and the pans and all of the different things that are going on, like the, the way that the protests are evolving in a little bit. But but first, we, we need to go through a few things that happened this week, obviously related to the protests. Uh, we, we've got sort of this political dance that's going on between different politicians. So Saad Hariri met with Gibran Basile uh, twice this week. Uh, and then Saad Hariri also went up to Babda to meet with Aoun this week uh, as well. And so it, it seems as though basically these these people, the the head of the future movement, right, and the the head heads of the free patriotic movement, mm-hmm. uh, they're, you know, they, they came into government three years back on the basis of this deal between these two parties. And now that's fallen apart a little bit and they're trying to put things back together, it seems, right? But they're, you know, they're 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 frenemies, sort of, in, in this partnership. And and as far as that goes, it seems as though like we don't we we are not privy to the discussions that happen between Basile and Hariri. And the, the, all of this is kept under under wraps uh pretty well. But from the leaks that we've gotten, from the reporting that we've gotten the suggestion is that basically the the sides are playing hardball. You know, we we've heard rumors that Basile is you know demanding that. Uh, well, hey, if you're going to be in the next government, Saad Hariri, I want to be as well because hey, it's a deal, right? It, it, it's a partnership, which of course would be anathema to the protesters, right? <laughs> you you can't have this government resign and then have like two of its main figures pop back up, especially these two figures, right? Especially these two figures. And I think in the past 10 years, you know, this whole dance, as you describe it, between March 8 and March 14 has always been limited to a certain margin. 
But whenever the politician tries to get a leg up by saying, oh, I got more votes or, oh, I've got more support or, oh, I'm on the right side of the war in I don't know which country. Now, either of these two are trying to say that the revolution's on my side. Harir is saying, oh, look at all my protesters in the street. Basil is saying 50,000 people showed up to Babda to support the president. So I think all of this completely outside of context when it comes to the actual protests, the actual revolution that's happening. Yeah. So before we get to the Babda protests and uh, or demonstration, the situation as it was, it hasn't really changed from last week when, when we released the last podcast. Basile has this condition, as you're saying, Ben, uh, that if it's a political cabinet, then it's a political cabinet and I'm in it. Then there are people like Amal and Hezbollah who are saying, we accept Hariri heading a less political cabinet without the main figures. And then Hariri himself seems to be in the situation where he's where he would accept one of two things, either to be a head of a, of a technocratic, more or less, government, or not to be prime minister at all. He's torn between these two choices with each having its, its cons and, pros and cons. Uh, but this is the situation overall. Amal and Hezbollah seems the, seem to be the parties that are act, actually most insistent about Hariri remaining as prime minister, even more than Hariri himself. Uh, according to most analysts, in my opinion as well, while Basile's main concern is about political representation. And, and it, it seems that uh, Basile, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's, he's also playing hardball here uh, because he's saying, first off, well, if you're in it, then I'm in it. But if you're not, that, that second choice, right? If you're not, like we heard this rumor that Basile is asking for all the Christian ministers to name all of the Christian ministers if there is a technocratic government or, or government that he's not a part of which is sort of in keeping with his style of negotiations, which is very maximalist. You, you don't give in. You, you, ask, for, you ask for the moon, and, and then you apparently usually get the moon uh, if you ask for it and hold out long enough. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so uh, faced with this, uh, you know, reportedly, Hariri went up to speak to uh, Gibran Basile's father-in-law, the president of the republic, uh, Michel Aoun, and uh, reportedly he told him, I'm out. I don't want to be prime minister. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Balls in your court, which of course seems to be sort of a a negotiating ploy. At least the way the way I read it, uh, as in Hariri saying, "Oh well, you you were trying to force me into this, you know, choice that Basile was giving me here," and I'm saying, "No, I'm calling your bluff. You've got the votes to go form a March eighth government, so go do that if you want to do that. I'm out, but." Hariri knowing all the time that that is what nobody wants, least of all Hezbollah. They definitely don't want a March 8th government un- unless worse comes to worse. So it, so in my mind, it's sort of like he, he's negotiating through through doing this, through pulling his name out of contention, uh, uh, reportedly. And for those of you wondering, like, wait, Gibran Basile, he's that guy that they were singing that, like, Hela, 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 Ho song about that, that was, like, you know, very much against Gibran Basile. How could he possibly think that he could come back as minister or like name a bunch of ministers or still be, you know, in this position of immense power. Well, he's got his own way of viewing things. And that was bolstered last Sunday uh, when the FBM held this, uh, you know, size of pretty sizable rally, you know, uh, uh, tens of thousands of people up in Baabda out waving the Lebanese flag and wearing orange and showing pictures of Michelle Aoun and everything in, in support of Gibran uh, Basile and Michelle Aoun. And Basile addressed the crowd. Uh, Aoun actually addressed the crowd in what appeared to be a live speech, which is pretty amazing because he 
didn't even do that for the Lebanese people, but he will do that for <laughs> for his supporters. And, and, and so, they call him Bayil Kill. The father of all. I mean, yeah, this was a very low moment, I think, for Aoun, and everyone felt it. Uh, even FPM people, I think, would w- w- they were so excited about it, but they saw the, the hypocrisy there. Like, suddenly he can speak live, and suddenly he... And, and, and he addressed them with the same words that he addressed his people when he came back from France in 2005, when he said, Ya Sha'ba Lubnan al-Azim, all the great people of Lebanon. This is his kind of signature um, beginning for a major speech. And he chose to do it after, like, you're saying tens of thousands. I don't know, like, some thousands of people were in Babda wearing orange rather than when two million people were protesting for, you know, a revolution in this country, etc. So it's a really weird kind of set of priorities that he has. And, and yeah, good, good point on the numbers as well. You know, they see, probably from their perspective, it's a larger amount of people. And then beyond that, if this many people showed up, just imagine how many people were sitting at home and couldn't come out to support General Aoun. Look, I think it's quite obvious that the free patriotic movement in particular, Jubran Basile, has taken the biggest hit in these protests. And I don't know who's had more hatred. The people of Lebanon hate his guts. Even inside the FPM movement, you know, there's a split between Kanaam, uh, between Shem al who's kind of distanced himself also from Basile, and is saying, oh, I agree with the demands. The FPM is in a particular crisis compared, for example, to the Lebanese forces or to the Kata'ib or to even, uh, even Hariri has gotten a bit of a soft cushion since he's resigned, right? Yeah. So just saying that Jibran Basile cannot possibly think he can survive this revolution, neither as minister, if uh, the audience and the followers of the FPM want any future for their party, he can't remain there. His protest in Babda was a farce. His speech was a farce. Everything he stood for, and he's become the epitome of everything that's wrong in this country, from impunity, from a macho sort of performance of politics, uh, from uh, and listening, even misogyny, listening to absolutely no one. So I, I honestly, racism, uh, blaming the refugees for everything, uh, his smirk, even, you know, the way he smiles. I don't see any future for Gibran Basile in this political arena at all. And, and, and that may be like totally spot on analysis, but I think the way that he sees it is very, very different. He, he just reads the situation from everything that I've heard him and his inner circle really just have a very different view of what's going on in Lebanon, which I don't see it. I don't understand it, but... Delusional. The guy is a narcissist. I He's think what like he a wants... Trump. He's absolutely delusional. He thinks he can ride it out. And we saw a little video leaked of him in a basement. I don't know if you saw it where he tells his supporters, just stay steady, just stay calm, we're going to make it out of this. I don't see how I, he possibly could. Yeah, I think what, what Basile is trying to do is, he already knows that he's like the most hated politician in the country. And many people across history who are major names in history are both hated and loved. And he, I think, is betting on, on this, that he would be this aggressive, hated political figure in defense of his people. This is what he's kind of trying to portray. This works with people like Bashir Jmail in the Civil War, but this doesn't work today because there's so many people who are major political actors who have, who are writing history maybe faster than you are, 
who are saying you're a bastard. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's not like you you control public discourse. So I I think that's a failed bet, and I think the FPM really seriously, as you're saying, should reconsider this because he's not gonna come out like go down in history as one of the great people if he's hated so much even before becoming president and failing or whatever. He's just been a minister if you think about it. And and can I make one other point though on this is that. The way that these politicians are acting, it seems to me as though they consider the protest sort of like as an afterthought. Like they're all the Zuama are sitting around the table playing their game of checkers or whatever they're they're playing with each other, trying to beat each other because they are the only ones who are players, act active players in this game. And yeah, the protests maybe have like tilted the board this way or that way, but they don't seem to consider the protesters as an active player in the game. Instead, we have Basile meeting with Hariri, right? We have Hariri meeting with Aon. We, we have the same constellation of figures all sort of competing against each other and negotiating with each other with kind of like very little consideration for what's actually happening on the streets of Beirut. And and, and as far as that goes, it's sort of like a... It's, to me, it seems like they're a bit blind to the situation, and 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 that that goes for the protests, and it also goes for just like the the economic situation as well, and and the financial crisis and everything. They seem so like oh, these are things that we can ride out. Uh, they're you know we've we've had crises before, we'll get through them or whatever. But the main game is between these top politicians. Hmm. I think that's absolutely spot on. I think. If I were one of them, my main strategy would be to wait it out. People are going to get bored, they're going to get tired, they're not going to have enough cash. There's going to be conflict among the protesters, etc., etc. We have to just wait this out for as long as possible. Yeah. And and speaking of that that other side of things, the the other thing that's sort of like tilting the board and, and that's the the economic situation, the financial situation, we also got a, lo- a lot of news on that this week. Moody's downgraded Lebanon yet again. I mean, we're already in you junk. know very, very far into junk territory. So this just takes it even further down. Also, I mean, the banks have been open for the past week. They they opened to the public last Friday uh, and they were open all of this week with, with the exception of a few branches that would close here and there because of protest actions. We'll get more into that later. But there certainly is like it, it seems as though from from all of the just like talk around town, that, that there is this sort of a slow run on the banks right now. It, it's not a, a massive thing, but people are going to the banks consistently and they're trying to withdraw their dollars. They're trying to withdraw wh- what they can from the banking system, from the financial sector. And that has gone wrong in a lot of situations. And, you know, because the banks themselves, they're trying not to give out, especially dollars. They've, they put a lot of restrictions on dollar transactions because there's a dearth of dollars right now in the country. So, you know, they're they're trying the banks are trying to keep all the dollars in house and people are saying, no, I have a dollar account. I want my dollars now because I'm afraid that the lira is going to collapse or the bank's not going to be there tomorrow or something like that. Uh, Or just, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'd like to have a little bit of money at home just in case, you know, uh, in case you close for two weeks again. And and this is, you know, it's it's this uh, liquidity crisis, this, you know, dollar liquidity crisis that we've spoken about before on the program. And but it's really hitting a, like it, it's it's not just like a theoretical abstraction anymore it's not just like a thing that maybe like big businesses or importers have to deal with anymore this is something that like regular everyday people are running into when they try to go to the bank yeah it's it's really tense in the banks uh especially the first two days they opened last week it was very tense because the banks are putting very serious restrictions on on how much money you can withdraw 
and also for example if you want to withdraw dollars there's a restriction usually an amount that you can withdraw a maximum per week and that's very usually very low uh, we're talking three thousand dollars maximum or something around that uh, that amount and then when you withdraw dollars you have to pay one percent depending on the bank but my bank for example now it's it's charging one percent just commission for withdrawing dollars two thousand dollars you pay twenty dollars which is really weird like why am i paying to get my money which you know i'm, I'm storing in your bank it doesn't make any sense they're putting it to to kind of reduce the demand and uh, to take some dollars out in the in the process and also they're refusing all conversion from dollars to uh, from the Belize pounds to dollars really I mean, that's I mean, that's not new though yeah that's not new but like i'm saying they're so they're being so strict about even small transactions, and uh, also the people who are feeling it the most are importers. And we're not talking about large importers only. We're talking about small companies that work in trade, companies that import products or raw materials. And they're both in a very bad situation because now they go to a bank, to the bank, and they say we want to transfer twenty thousand dollars to this person in 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 spain for uh, thing we th- something we're importing and then the bank is like no this month you can only transfer three thousand and then next month three thousand business will collapse and these companies will run out of things and even if they don't run don't, don't run out of objects or raw materials things will get more expensive because there's less of them and there's more demand of them and therefore we have worse inflation and these prices going up without the wages going going up and with the economy doing so bad is a is a really dangerous thing up to the point where you will have a lot of companies collapsing if they if this doesn't change so we're in a really serious kind of liquidity crisis situation it seems i think there's in three important things to remember when we talk about this uh, liquidity crisis and this banking crisis one is that it was on purpose from the regime's spokespeople this week, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, that George Ghanem went on TV and made this uh, quiet and uh, imposed a scare tactic on the people that caused people to panic. Uh, Riyad Salemi before that had said we're going to a disaster. There's a lot of promotion he of He claims this. he was misquoted, but it's of on course, video. But uh, he, yani, the point of the regime is to say, and you know, you saw that Harakat uh, Amal, uh, the Amal movement, today or yesterday put out a video about the protests that directly said look at the economic disaster that these protests have led to Mm. and so this is playing in people's heads as they number one get discounts on their salaries a lot of companies we've heard about them have not paid their employees in full either Mm -hmm. citing that the employees did not work in the past month fully or saying that they were not able to make enough profits therefore they don't have money to pay or they've been laying off people, or they've been purposely asking people not to protest. So that's one part of it. In the narrative war of of who is to blame, we have to always make sure, because there's this thing in Lebanon where people try to uh, think hard to solve the problem, which is not our job to do as protesters. It's not our job to say the central bank must do one, two, three, the association of banks must do one, two, three. It's our job to set our demands and to make sure that people remember that it's the fault of these politicians over so many years. And so if they want to help mellow this crisis or solve this crisis or at least give a softer blow to this crisis, they have to all leave and resign and we have to get a new government in place that knows how to deal with what is undoubtedly a, a problem for all of us. And I'm not saying a new government is going to bring prosperity and dollars will be available and the lira is going to be stable, etc. But I'm saying nobody trusts 
the current regime to even begin uh, solving this issue. So I think we have to, as protesters, keep that rhetoric out there in the streets that it's, it's their fault that we got here. So any person that uh, goes broke and can't buy bread, any shortage in bread or fuel or medicine or anything, this is, we say in Arabic, in the necks of this parliament and the cabinet before it and the president. This is very important because sometimes the protesters get lost in what's the solution? How do we do it? Internalizing Here's everything. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we see an example of the just the failure of the ruling class to do something here, especially in terms of what what happened when the banks reopened, right? This is this is like the perfect point to make here because they reopened with no uniform controls on dollar transactions, right? Every bank sort of did their own little thing, and and people warned beforehand. Dan Azzi, for instance, friend of the show, warned beforehand, hey, if you do this without some sort of like uniform capital controls coming down from from on high from BDL or you know the the relevant authorities then what is it going to lead to well it's going to lead to people with wasta being able to take out their money but the you know the little guy is going to get stuck with yeah sorry we can't do that and we're we're not willing to do that is the more uh, apt response right and from reports we've seen some reports already we don't know this yet uh, but we've already seen some reports that that may have been what happened, exactly what happened when, as soon as banks opened up. There, there was not. I, I, I don't want. I don't want our listeners to get the wrong idea here. It's not like there's this huge run on the banks and everybody is pulling out the money. But there seems to be this sort of like slow pressure uh, uh, for withdrawing money from the banks, uh, uh, sending dollars overseas, et cetera. And then, and in the couple of days, you know, right when the banks reopened after being closed for two weeks, uh, the reports were that the vast majority of the dollars that left the financial system w- were elite dollars. And so here we have exactly what you're talking about. Of it's just like, oh, well, people have pointed out that, hey, there's a danger of doing this if you don't manage it properly. And it seems as though the people who are in power, who should be <laughs> be on the top of their game right now, like right now is the time to be on the ball and be very, very careful. It's like It seems as though they're not doing what they should be doing. And I think what you're saying, uh, both of you kind of converge on this point, which is that the only way your confidence can really be restored in the market is with with clarity, right? With certainty. So we need a new government because that would help restore some confidence that, you know, there are people with the prerogatives to, to make decisions and fix the situation. Also, we need some policy rather than like the uncertainty of private acts. From my perspective, the problem with how Riyad Salemi is managing, the central bank government governor is ban- managing all of this crisis, he's kind of leaving it to the banks and saying we don't want to put any capital controls from the state side. But this means that people will just be looking at like their options on which banks would allow them to do this or that. They will be less certain whether they can do this, w- what rights they have in the situation or how they should act, etc. And uncertainty is less confidence. It's really just a very counterproductive thing to do. You should be at least clear. And Riyad Salim has been really bad at just being clear to us what exactly the situation is, what are the compromises that we have to do, who will make the other compromises, etc. I'm not saying it's all his responsibility, but he's has not been doing a, a good job in this. And on the other point that you're saying, when uh, in terms of like elite money escaping, we all knew, knew everyone knew that uh, 
because obviously because we know a lot of bank employees everyone knew that people were going to the banks and working before the banks were opened to the public and they were doing transactions on the inside without with the doors closed without the normal customers going there but when you have that then you have like the vip customers calling in and transferring their money and doing their transactions if they have the the wast or the connection to do that and the scary part is that 0.5% of of depositors own more than half of the wealth in banks and bank deposits that's insane that's that's a really huge concentration so a very small number of people relatively speaking is basically making the the decisions about the, the fate of the whole society in terms of uh, its economic well-being and this is why we need policy because we need policy that applies to everyone rather than to one person not the other depending on their privilege the privileges that they already have in the class system um and and also i think it's very important at this point just to put the cherry on top uh we heard that hospitals private hospitals are going to be closing their doors next friday because they say hey we just we we haven't been paid in years the state owes us like 1.3 billion dollars and we can't import things because our importers can't get dollars you know and this is all stuff that you have to import and so they're going on strike this uh this coming friday unless something changes and reverses their decision and also we we do have gas shortages right now you nizar you were telling me you were, you were just you were just out doing some field research right yeah i was trying to fill my motorcycle and i found no gas station open at like uh, 4 or 5 p.m. today on saturday so Yeah they must be going on some kind of preemptive strike. They had strike. said no, they had said that they will operate until 5 or until they run out. Yeah, something they, I think they're rationing because they don't want to like like announce a strike or like a closure so that people don't panic and everything. But they they, they have to limit the number of hours or do something to reduce uh, to reduce consumption. Yeah. There seems to be clear like shortage. Yeah. And and so of course things the situation as far as that goes seems to not be getting any better for sure and and so that leads us right back to well why you know people out there protesting for just like things to fucking work and for like more trustworthy people to be in charge and make them work right and 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 this week we've seen a real i, I don't know like evolution of uh the tactics that are used we're not closing roads anymore for the most part uh, still here and there right but uh, that that tactic that was earlier on in the protest that was very very prominent in you know the first second week that's sort of gone to the wayside and we see people closing down more targeting public institutions like EDL the state electricity company that doesn't supply a full 24 hours <laughs> uh despite it being 30 years after the fucking war is over right. uh and my fa- my favorite occupation was that of the train station if you saw it Some kids went and occupied Mabkhail or some some uh, part of this uh, railroad that we have that doesn't work <laughs> some kids got on and were like you know we're cutting uh, public transport <laughs> Oh that's amazing Yeah that but people amazing. got really creative with what they wanted to shut down and there's been mail there's been water there's been electricity there's been random kind of like ministerial offices and all the, I think all the it was services that don't work the part that don't work anyway right and i think it's very important to remember that people halted the strategy of road closures by their own will it wasn't like the government forced us to or the police were shutting it down it wasn't like people were scared or bored or tired people just wanted to give the chance for others to work there was all this talk about service drivers not being able to make a decent uh, 
living by the end of the month there was you know people who wanted parents were really tired of kids you know having to like stay at home all the time and so what we saw happen is that the kids <laughs> kind of went back to school and then revolted which I thought was a beautiful kind of sequence of events that these kids were you know mostly sitting at home no you can't go to the protest no what do I do with you sit here so they watch tv for two weeks and then finally went Uh-oh. back to school and <laughs> saw each other and were like, you know, let's do what we've been seeing and took to the streets and what was quite uh, quite an amazing sight to see all these kids everywhere in the country. Yeah, they've, they've been much more in the spotlight, like kids in like secondary school or even younger in some cases. Right. And, and then also university students, university students have been out there before but like they're still out there right Uh, and and so it's it it, it's interesting to see this especially for for those people like they've been there but now they're in the spotlight a whole lot more absolutely but also the ones who i think what happened with aust what happened with balamand we've noticed a pattern of whenever an authority of any sort it could be the dean or the principal or the Nun uh, uh, Marie uh, Claire, I think her name was, uh, Marie Celine, Sir Marie Celine. Whenever any authority has tried to suppress the protesters, they have revolted. Whether it's closing Bliss Street, closing AUST, closing Balamand. So it wasn't the usual kind of the universities that already have very active clubs. It was every university everywhere. Yeah, we had thousands at the Lebanese University in Hadath. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, which is uh, a sensitive spot because it's near areas that are known to be, you know, uh, controlled by Hezbollah, etc. And it's 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 considered to be not very safe to be mobilizing in Hadas, and they were mobilizing in thousands, uh, and even like young kids, like five and seven and ten, and revolting against their teachers and saying no, we don't want to go to class, or like doing chants in in their breaks, whatever. So beautiful. Like I was at my sister's uh, house last night. And my nephew and niece are just completely like in revolution mode. Like we were th- singing happy birthday. And then just when my niece uh, turned off the, like, blew off the candles, uh, they started singing Thawra, Thawra. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's really so much like it's it's ing- yeah. like, you know, it's it, it's overwhelming. It took over everyone. And this, this the next generation, these people, these kids are, it's so amazing that they're living this experience now. The ones who are five and seven and 10, but also the ones who are 18, who are graduating to adulthood on this, uh, like through this revolution, right. you know. And they are fearless, you know. I'm quite in awe of this generation. I think, I think that we finally met this, this new generation and they are fucking fearless. Yeah, they don't. It's quite amazing to me to to interact with someone you know twenty years younger than me on the street who has no fear of <laughs> you know civil war yeah. of the derek of the army. They just they look at this country through a completely different lens. They organize in different ways. Their jokes are funnier than ours. Their demands <laughs> are way more radical than ours ever were. They just. They just have no fear. And I think a lot of people have tried to figure out, you know, what's the main thing of this? Why did this revolution succeed? Was it this group or that group? Was it uh, gender? Was it class? Was it decentralization, etc.? I think the biggest factor was these young people. They're just a different, they're just a different mindset from all of us. Yeah, so, I mean, we saw the emergence of new actors, definitely, or not new actors, but actors that kind of came to the center of things 
this week because before that everyone it was mostly a public that is taking part of the protest basically everyone it was like so diverse that you couldn't uh, you know say this is these are the this is social group is protesting or these are the people who we can like categorize in any way now we're seeing different things so apart from the fact that the the tactics are changing from you know roadblocking and general disruption to targeting specific institutions that kind of hurt uh, the ruling class or stop the state from working etc you also have like new people coming to the surface or people newly coming to the surface as like main mobilizers we had very nice uh, feminist march uh, that was on Sunday that led to kind of or joined the major demonstration but had its own kind of um, uh, you know chance and, and demands and its own character and it had a very nice presence uh, a lot of energy now if you want Nadine to reflect on that we also had the sectors mobilizing uh, university teachers have created like an informal union NGO workers as well Lawyers are mobilizing outside of their the order of lawyers, which is controlled by the ruling class. Judges are mobilizing as part of the Nadil Qudad, the judges club, which is quite radical in like its in its opposition to to the system and the ruling class. And journalists as well, because of their because their union or their order is is also co-opted, they're starting their own mobilization. And students, so it's really the sectors coming back to surface in a, in a country where sectors have not been the center of mobilization for a while, except when the you know the teachers and the public sector workers were under this bold leadership of of you know left wing figures like Hanna Gharib and others who were mobilizing from 2012 to 2012. 15 before the ruling class took over the the elections and the unions and and destroyed the whole thing the whole movement so it, it's really kind of refreshing as well to see this coming to to light and it gives a lot of credibility to the movement to this uprising when people see for example that oh these are lawyers who are protesting today oh these are doctors because of this class thing that exists in all of our heads like it's not just like uh, poor people who don't know anything about uh, you know how to manage society it, it, it matters like when, when you have such when you live in a capitalist society with a lot of social, social stratification this prestige matters but also to bring back the idea that that workers and organized workers have a role in, in an uprising is so important yeah, I absolutely agree, Nizar. And I think, you know, two points about this uh, sector kind of uh, mobilization. I think uh, on one hand, people who started off in this revolution a bit more reluctant wanted to kind of see who's with us, right? Like mm. who's on our side. And this was, you know, this is a classical revolutionary question of which side are you on? So I think a lot of the mobilizations of uh, women as a class students as a class, doctors, when they did it, I think it was in a room hospital, when mm. doctors came out and said, we are with you. It doesn't mean all doctors in Lebanon are now organized and supportive, but it means something to the protesters to see in who's on our side, right? Yeah. When the celebrities came down, whether they were productive or counterproductive, some of them complete idiots yeah, and they don't know what they're doing there but <laughs> yeah. people wanted to know like who's on our side who's mm. going to stand with us and it took some time for people to sort of mobilize together to go down and say we as you know the artists are with you we the theater folk are with you we the doctors we the engineers we the i don't know what and there's also another part of it which is the age-long debate of 
when is it time to talk about some social issues or not others? This mm. thing about revolutions and compromise. And I have a very interesting personal list of all the compromises I've made during this revolution. And I think we've all made compromises to be able to step together into this massive, massive, yeah, two million plus people. For us to all agree on one or two things, it means everybody kind of gave mm. up a little, you know? Okay, I'm not gonna talk about this topic. I'm gonna sing the national anthem. I'm gonna wave the Lebanese flag. I'm going to sing to Julia Butros. I'm gonna sing that kind of song, which I would never <laughs> be caught dead listening, singing. But it's a revolutionary time, right? If it gets people, same thing with Jibran Basile, Kiss People were uh, chanting it because it sort of meant people were kind of checking each other out. Are we in this together? Yeah. Or are you now going to be like, no, it has to be this or that, this or that. And uh, so as soon as we had a bit of a breather, which is two weeks into the revolution, I think we started to organize around what we want from this revolution, right? Mm -hmm. So you saw the feminists get together and organize a march to say it's either a feminist revolution or it isn't, you know? It's either women are part of it or it's not our revolution. To say that a revolution, for like changing the regime for us means women become citizens of this country, means women live a decent life in this country. And we saw the same thing with or the student strike or everyone talking about their own issues but with a beautiful consciousness of how this relates to the regime mm -hmm. and I've seen people on TV who are like I don't know 20 or 16 or even 60 make this amazing intersectional analysis of uh, in my dorm the toilets don't work in Akkar and this is why we need to change the regime you know, with such sophistication and complexity, which also has given me more hope that people understand what they're doing. And this is what I think everyone feels in this during these times is that there's just so much political consciousness, even without us being a society that is well educated on politics. Like we don't have political debates that are about policies. We don't have any talks about ideologies, things that make up usually what is politics. And but but this revolting, you know, this act of revolting in itself is such an easy and quick way to to kind of build our collective consciousness. So it's really something that I'm observing and impressed with as well, as you're saying. But I think like, we, I think we got too like, you know, romantic about this, but like to, to, to go back to the big picture of what's, of what's happening now, it's a matter of time, it's a matter of momentum, right? Um, as you were saying, uh, Nadine, uh, the, the best thing for the ruling class is that things take long enough for people to be tired, for people to start turning against each other, right. for the range and rage and anger that we have against the politicians that we know we start expressing it and practicing it in ways that are much more destructive against each other, against, you know, the neighbor or the person you're meeting in the streets. Because this is the something that we also saw during this this whole uprising is that people have much more solidarity than you usually do. They're much more patient towards each other on the street in random situations. People are just nicer. They're smiling more, etc. Well, there's Absolutely. there's less traffic. And the, yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> no, one that's big not, factor. That's a different point. Um, but in general, I think what's what's it's really about time. Um, the ruling class is trying to blame us for the worst the situation, the economic situation, situation, and the hospitals that's coming. Even Probably though some, all of these problems existed long before the protests, obviously, like obviously, but when when people in government and people in media are talking about it in this framing, 
then it will, you know, it will start becoming reality that the protests are in one way or another if affecting the country negatively. And the, the moment the momentum is definitely slowing down, which is why I think we had we needed this thing to happen this week. Like we needed the students and the and the sectors and everything to be moving. Pots because, and pans. And the, yeah, exactly. And the pots and pans, which we didn't discuss as a, as a tactic, as a strategy, but it's so important because it's basically saying, okay, not all of us can have the, the time and the energy and the, the, the capacity to be in the street all the time. So we brought our the revolution back home and we're doing it from our balconies and even from the, behind the closed curtains which is usually the case, you know, when, when you are afraid to show that you are supportive of the, this revolution, because the tactic in this, this the, the genius of this, like, nonviolent resistance kind of tactic is that the oppressor or the person who you're afraid of can't know where the sound is coming from specifically, especially when people start, think, start following each other in this. So you, you know that this is the whole building, this sound is coming from this building, but you don't know exactly which flat, which protects people participating in it. If you go down to the streets and your party leader like Nasrallah or, or Basil or whatever, like specifically said, don't go to these protests because they are against us, then you, you're risking something much, you know, you're risking, risking something big. So it's, it's going... It's less about the squares now. Downtown is much more empty than it was before. Uh, it's less about, you know, showing, being the num- high, large numbers every day. It's more about targeted, uh, targeted protests, uh, about certain uh, sector- sectors and, and sections of the populations rising to the surface. But overall, if there's no momentum, then there's a big problem because in two weeks, if people are just really tired, and this is possible, they will they will have a much larger room of doing things like Hariri and Basil and and Berri and Nasrallah and the, the whole bunch will have just you know more options because a major source of pressure has been released uh, on the other hand we have the issue of a crash that might come a financial crash uh, a big shortage in something like gasoline or wheat or whatever that might bring people back to the streets a devaluation or, or a depreciation of the lira that is so drastic, for example, if it happens because of the liquidity crisis, etc., this might bring people back to the seats. So it's it's really a sensitive kind of line they're walking on, the politicians now. They want to buy time, but they can't buy too much time. And we're in a similar situation, right? Because we can't, like, we don't yeah. want to, we can't rush things. We can't pretend that we have more power, more leverage today. We don't want them to wait. But we're also wo- hoping that they don't find a, an illusion of a solution so that uh, uh, things don't go back to normal. Yeah, that's very accurate. I agree. Yeah, I, I mean, you don't want to, um, you sort of have to keep the pressure on the politicians because if you ease up on them, then basically they're going to continue stumbling into this crisis. And so if you really, if you don't want a crisis to happen, then you like the, the only solution really at, at this point, it seems is that, no, you need to put proper people in place to avert the, the crisis. And those proper people are not currently the ones in place. Exactly. But also I feel like there's, there's something we've already won. And I feel like there's a, general feeling that we've won something they can never take back no matter what happens in the next days if the momentum slows down if the government the new cabinet uh, takes place now the formation is later etc i sense that people have come to this place of a common sense of love and identity and togetherness and solidarity as you said nizar 
and that nobody wants to turn back from it. Nobody, and once you've experienced this love from, you know, five million other people in your country, why would you want to go back to what we used to? I can't even remember what we used to watch on the news every day. You know, this guy threatened this guy, this guy said some sectarian thing, this guy is like wanting to talk about Christian trees that got burnt and all this absurdity. <laughs> and that's what's mm. amazing about revolutions is that they sort of decloak the, the this wall of absurdity that just you thought was silly for a long time but suddenly you tore it down you know so i think momentum wise sector wise anything wise there's uh, something that's going to keep on happening especially if we learn to organize better which is also another topic that we don't do very well but if we learn to sort of keep these connections going think about the our agenda think about what we want, who we want in the next elections, how we want to to keep pressuring because we're not going to win everything. I think there's something we've won that they can never take away from us. I think that's the last word. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's the note to end on there. Thank you so much for joining us, Nadine. Really, really appreciate you yeah. coming on the show. It's really awesome. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. I love you guys. I love what you do. I'm slightly surprised you've made it this far. <laughs> surprised and impressed. What is it? Uh, something it's all like about determination. How many episodes is it? 62. 62. Yeah. And something like how many followers? If we count in FPM terms, right. tens 50, of thousands. 50,000. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you can absolutely do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, thanks so much. Really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, and that's it for us this week. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And Nadine Mawad. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.